You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from today, which is the 21st of February. And on the programme this Wednesday... As Abu Dhabi's family court makes a landmark ruling regarding the custody of children, lawyer Byron James talked us through the progress they're making in the capital. Meanwhile, as rents rise, so are evictions. Have you been evicted recently? Plenty of people got in touch with us saying that they're having problems with their landlords. And we talked tenant rights with lawyer Andrew Lyons. Meanwhile, the food of the future is going to be fermented in factories and not grown in fields. We discussed high-tech agriculture with not one but two experts who told us how the protein of the future is going to be made in laboratories. Meanwhile, the world's biggest vertical farm is located right here in Dubai, just next door to Al Maktoum International Airport. Now, before you comment that you haven't seen any fields, it used to be an American firm, but now it's entirely owned by Emirates Flight Catering. We caught up with their general manager, Faraz Al-Sufi, to find out why it's the future of sustainable farming. And new figures are revealing two deaths from MERS in Saudi Arabia in the last six months. Got us worrying. We wanted to find out why the virus has never become a pandemic and whether or not maybe it could. Virologist Professor Ian Jones joined us on the show and put our minds at ease. Hello there. We are discussing evictions on the programme today because I think it's fair to say that as Dubai's rents rise, so do the number of evictions, of course, driven by landlords who want higher property yields and, of course, tenants who are either unable or unwilling to pay higher rates. Now, if that rings a bell with you, please do get in touch, 4001, or you can WhatsApp us on 04871 We'd love to hear your experiences in that rental market because I think, I think it's causing quite a lot of distress for people. You know, if you're forced to move out of your home, you're ultimately forced to move out of your neighbourhood because... For example, if you're living in Arabian ranches and the rent goes up in the house you're in, then it's going to go up in all the houses around you as well. So you're going to have to move elsewhere. And I think it's fair to say that we're seeing some pretty sort of sharp tactics by landlords who are understandably, I suppose, keen to make the most out of their asset, but they shouldn't be acting illegally. And it does sound like many of them might be. Well, are they? Well, we wanted to find out how common it is and what you can do about it if you are affected. And a little earlier, I was joined in the studio by the lawyer, Andrew Lyons. He is partner and head of the dispute resolution practice at Davidson & Co, where he says they have been seeing an increasing number of queries from tenants who are facing issues with those rising rents and ultimately evictions. It's always a bitter pill to swallow when, uh, as a tenant, you see rising cost of living and then the the landlord gets in contact to increase the rental rates as well. You know, if you look at it from the landlord's perspective, they're also combating personal rising costs. Um, mortgage rates, for example, being being one which is the focus for, for them as a landlord. Um, there's definitely been a, an increase in the number of landlords trying to increase rent either beyond the, the maximum that's legally capable, which is 20%, subject to 
some variables, and um, and even trying to evict tenants in order to uh, take back control of the property and relet it at uh, at the the current market rate. We've obviously seen quite a significant increase since you know post COVID era. Huge number of people coming in, population growth, supply and demand ratios kind of change, and suddenly there's huge demand for for rent. So that's given a drive to the rental prices. Which, uh, I want to talk about those variables that you touched on there because I think that's where, you know, I think that's the the extra twist that we're getting in our uh, Virgin Marys, um, our Virgin Mary drinks. So how about um, if you have, okay, so you're only allowed to put up the rent twenty percent as a landlord. Unless you go and get it revalued, is that well, right? Well, let's set the scene for the main topic, which is, um, I suppose, what to do if you have been un- unlawfully evicted. Um, but to go back a little bit, a landlord can increase the rent year on year, provided the, the rate that you're paying is a certain level below what is considered fair market rent for the property. Now, that changes from year to year. And the maximum that a landlord could ever increase is 20%, but it jumps up in, from 5% to 10%, 15%, or 20%. But if you are, you have to be a significant amount below fair market value. So, for example, for a landlord to be eligible to increase your rent by 20%, you have to be 50% below fair market rate in order for him to be eligible to do that. And there's a sliding scale, which will then slide down to 15 10 or 5% increase, or he may not be eligible for an increase at all. The rental, uh, the RERA rental index, uh, sorry, RERA rental calculator, which is available online, it's a free platform, will tell you, if you plug in your details, where you are on the market uh, scale. That is pretty standard. It doesn't t- take into consideration um, individual property uh stages whether they've been renovated whether they're upgraded for example so there is another way where a landlord can ask for a specific valuation to take into consideration those factors so there are a few twists to it but ultimately if you go on the rear calculator it is all pretty clear the problem arises when you look at the rear calculator and you send a very friendly but you know strongly worded email to your landlord along the lines of you can't put it up that much And then you end up in this sort of catch-22 where they're going, well, we are going to. And you're going, well, we're not leaving. And it says that we don't have to. What do you do then? Yeah, you find yourself in a stalemate situation at that point. What you need to be very careful of from a tenant's point of view is that you don't sit on your hands and do nothing beyond the point at which your lease should have renewed. So what you should do is be proactive, go and file what's called an offer and deposit case with uh, RERA. And basically, you're going to the to RERA to say, my landlord is refusing to give me the new lease. I'm not obliged to pay any increase. Here's an offer and deposit where you effectively are saying, I'm going to deposit the rental check for the existing rental amount. Can you force him to come and give me the new lease? You need to do that before the renewal date. Otherwise, he could arguably evict you for non-payment of even rent. the undisputed portion of the rent. Yeah. Jay's got in touch. By the way, lots of people are getting in touch straight away. Like my, my, my message board is going wild here. Just very quickly, Jay says, what is the notice period by landlord to current tenant? Well, the notice period, if they want to increase your rent, is 90 days. 
They have to serve you notice, 90 days worth of notice prior to the renewal date. That notice doesn't have to be served by notary public or recorded delivery. Simple email or or a message, WhatsApp, if that's the, the, the usual route of communication is sufficient for that. This person's texted in, choosing to remain anonymous. We were kicked out as the landlord said they were moving in. We then saw the property listed for double and it has now been rented out. We know it's not been sold again, although the agent told us it had been sold to another buyer. We didn't renew the Ajari and therefore we don't know if we can take them to court. Yes, you can. You can claim damages in that scenario. So there are two different types of scenarios whereby you usually see someone feels that they've been unfairly evicted. They've been served an eviction notice. It's important to say that you don't want to leave the property, but you are abiding by the the terms of the eviction notice that you've given. Um, You will rely on that further down the line. And um, once you leave the property, if you've been evicted because the landlord has told you he's selling and he subsequently doesn't sell but relets it at a higher market price, you can file for compensation. Uh, there's different ways to do that. We can get into the detail of it. But essentially, what what the courts are likely to do is to compensate you for the difference in the rental price that, that you were paying versus what the new tenant is paying. That is John there talking to us all about uh, rents. And we are going to be taking more calls on that subject. Really fantastic to get lawyer Andrew Lyons on the line. He is partner and head of the dispute resolution practice at Davidson & Co. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. Welcome back to The Agenda, talking evictions on the programme today, because as Dubai's rents rise, so do the number of evictions, of course, driven by landlords looking for higher property yields, higher rents. And we are seeing some pretty dodgy tactics by landlords. Um, I think quite a lot of cases I've heard of just sort of anecdotally in my social circle. And I'm sure you've heard of them as well. Uh, Do get in touch. Tell me all about them. Um, It is 4001 or that's the text line or you can WhatsApp me on 04871 We wanted to find out how significant the issue is. And earlier we were joined in the studio by lawyer Andrew Lyons from Davidson and Co. He very kindly agreed to take your questions. Um, that was after he outlined the most common issues his practice is seeing at the moment. From a rental point of view, from a landlord tenant point of view, we see landlords trying to increase rents beyond the maximum which is allowed in any given year, which is 20%, or they simply are evicting but they're evicting unlawfully. So they're evicting on the basis that they're going to sell or they're going to use it for personal use. They subsequently don't and they rent it out to somebody else at a much higher rate. And then, of course, tenants are aware of that. They feel like they've lost out. They have lost out. They've had to go into the open market and pay current market rates. So in in that scenario, they have the right to claim damages compensation from the landlord for unlawful eviction. The do land- you, does that work? Do they, do they get compensation? Have no, you seen cases where it happens? Yes, it absolutely works. And I think a lot of tenants don't realise that they have that option available to them. And a lot of landlords probably don't mind because the reality is if you've got somebody as a tenant living in your property on, let's say, an old school COVID rent, for example – uh, and the market rate is maybe twice the price because we've seen such a massive increase in rental rates uh, in the last couple of years. A landlord is happy to take the chance 
if he does get sued for damages or compensation, he's also happy to pay that because... Over he's making f- double over, and will next year and well, the year well, after and it. the year after. Over a five-year period, he's he's well ahead of the game because it would take him five years to going by to a that. maximum 20% increase annually for five years. So he takes the hit for year one, which is in any event not coming out of his pocket. He's taking that from the increase that he got from the new tenant anyway. So it's Ooh. a bit of a no-brainer from a landlord's point of view and... If tenants are aware of their right, they can get some compensation. Don't take that as a as a pointer, landlords. <laughs> that, <laughs> that wasn't advice in any way. Uh, really interesting stuff. And it makes you realise why so many of these evictions are happening. Keenan says, is there a way to check if your landlord re-rents or really sells the unit? This is once he's forced you out. It's the only legal way landlords can get you to leave the property. How do you check? Well, a lot of people just keep a close eye, quite literally. You know, they'll drive around, they'll have a look. Um, more formally, you can go to Ijari, uh, Tarira, if you've got your old Ijari and you ask them, they they should tell you if there's a new Ijari registered. Alternatively, you can take the property number, I think it's called a McCanny number, which is on the wall of the, the villa usually or it's near the apartment. And you can plug that in to the Rira open um, open data online. And it will then just give you updates. And, and that's, yeah. that's very interesting. Keenan also says, how long do you have to do that? So what if you only heard this advice just now and it all happened about a year and a half ago? Um, well, I think there's two ways to interpret that question. One is how long do you have to, f- to file a claim before you lose the chance? That's what we call a statute of limitations or a time bar. There would be no limit on that for five years plus. Oh, interesting. Um, the other way of interpreting that question is um, how long does uh, how long do, do they have to have Oh, waited before they rent the property? Yes. Yes. Um, and again, that's two years. That's uh, two years. So if, they, oh, if okay. they've evicted you because they are using it for personal use, yeah. they have to be using it for personal use for two years or for sale, they can't be uh, reletting that within that two-year period. Okay, this person anonymous says, my friend got a court notice to vacate. Allegedly, the landlord wanted to sell. When he vacated, the landlord asked him to give an NOC so the landlord can rent if he's unable to sell soon. Does the NOC supersede a court notice? The villa is still vacant for sale. That's quite niche, isn't it? That's quite niche. I would say, yes, it does. You're effectively confirming that you don't object to the landlord reletting the property in the event he can't find a buyer. Now, of course, you could find a buyer. He just may not find one at the right price. Don't sign the NOC if you want to retain the right to claim compensation. Um, yeah, that yeah. would be crazy. Why? I, I, um, the person who sent that message in, how come he signed an NOC? I, I wouldn't do that unless I was given some cash. Maybe that was what happened. Well, maybe that. But then you've effectively done a settlement amicably, which yeah. again is open. So whilst I think your earlier question was, have you seen an increase in these types of cases? I've seen an increase in the number of inquiries. A lot of those settle. Uh, a lot of those people don't actually take the initiative or don't realise that they can quite so easily and accessibly take the case. Because it might be that you can warn your landlord you're going to take a case against them and at that point they might agree to settle. Exactly. Very interesting. Andrew Lyons there. Now, we also, a little bit later on in the programme, asked him about you know, how you would actually go about raising a case with RERA because if people are going to try and avoid eviction, then that's your only sort of 
plan of action, really. And Andrew explained that it's not as daunting as many people might fear. One of two ways, contact a lawyer and he'll do it for you. He'll charge you a fee. He might charge you a success fee in which he will agree to share the cost effectively. So he'll either check the case, confirm whether you've got a viable claim and say to you, we won't charge you a fee. We'll just take a percentage of whatever you get at the end. Or we will charge you a small fee up front. You'll cover the small costs that you have to pay to the to the court, essentially. And then we'll take a, a success fee at the end. So I find a lot of lawyers, a lot of local advocates out there who are doing these day in, day out are quite prepared to do that. The alternative option, if you prefer to go it alone, is to simply go down to RERA. They will direct you around to one of the typing centres who can essentially help process that claim. You might need to go back a day or so later. They will basically prepare the claim if you explain clearly what it is, what the background is. And you can outsource to them at a fraction of the cost. It's not an expensive process and it is quite efficient. RERA does try to process these claims within 15 days. Sometimes they may need to appoint an expert to go to the the apartment or the villa and uh, just double check for themselves that there is somebody else in occupation. But other than that, it's a pretty straightforward process. Andrew Lyons, their partner and head of the dispute resolution practice for Davidson and Co. We'll definitely be getting him back in the studio. And huge thanks to everyone who sent their questions through. Uh, It's clearly a little bit of a problem out there at the moment. So certainly a story that we will be keeping our eye on here on the agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8. But we're just going to turn our attention now to another really interesting court case because Abu Dhabi's family court has made a landmark ruling regarding the custody of two children. Um, Basically, the judge awarded full custody to an Australian Muslim father who lives right here in the UAE. The mother will only get visiting rights. Now, the case was really complicated. So we've actually invited one of the lawyers involved into the studio. Uh, It's one of our regulars, Byron James. He's a partner and head of the expatriate law team in the UAE and he specialises in all aspects of family law. And this was actually, this case was your responsibility, wasn't it, Byron? So I represented the father. Welcome into the studio. Thank you very much. And congratulations on on winning the case, which of course, I'm sure is very close to your heart. It must be very difficult as a family lawyer not to get emotionally involved in these cases as well. But tell me, why was this a landmark moment? It's an important case because it's a real statement by the court in a number of items. So the first is that it, is an example of the court not discriminating on religion or on gender. And that alone is a very important starting point. I think a lot of people, so this has been in the press uh, other places this week, I think a lot of people misunderstood when they saw Muslim father gets full custody of of children because I think there's a misapprehension that um, that's something for, say, for example, mothers to be fearful of. Not the case. So the point about this decision is the judge ruled in what was the most uh, best interests of the children, not because of gender, not because of religion. Um, And that's really important because elsewhere in the GCC, including in the personal status courts in the other Emirates, those would be very important factors. In fact, determinative factors often. And so the other things that were relevant about the case, um, the children actually had quite strong wishes and feelings, which the court, um, they wrote to the judge. And that was obviously on the court record and, and formed part of the decision. 
Um, and also, in this case, the mother lived abroad. So she lived in, in the USA. And in other courts in the UAE and in the GCC, there wouldn't have even been jurisdiction to hear it. It's this unusual thing where the respondent's location provides the basis of jurisdiction, not where the children live. And so there are um, expatriates uh, who live in the UAE who wouldn't be able to bring a case against their partner just because they live abroad, but not in Abu Dhabi. In Abu Dhabi, you can bring a case and have it determined on the best interest of the children. Okay, so obviously, I'm, I'm sure the judge made the best decision here. Um, as a mother, you know, you may, maybe unfairly, you sort of instinctively think, oh, but, but what about the mother? You know, she's now not going to have her children with her. She lives in the United States. Were there mitigating circumstances? Are we able to talk about why maybe the children wanted to remain here? So look, it's unusual for this court to make an order, uh, an order other than joint custody. Okay. Um, and of course, you know, children's ages are relevant to so very young children. It's extremely unusual for them not to be with their mother if they're very young. But um, when you're dealing with children who aren't babies, the normal starting point is joint custody. Mm-hmm. And if you remember, this court, the Abu Dhabi Civil Family Court, makes an automatic joint custody order on any divorce uh, that it makes because it wants to be very clear that both parents are just as important as the other in both the time they spend with the children and decision making. So it is an unusual case where you're saying to a parent, no, you're not going to perform the role of a joint custodian. And in this case, yes, there were unusual circumstances which justified that. So is this typical of the Abu Dhabi family court? Are we seeing unprecedented cases being seen there? Are we seeing unprecedented decisions being made? Yes. And when we say unprecedented, we mean for the region. And actually what I would say is that what we're seeing is decisions which are culturally appropriate for expatriates, uh, particularly in children cases, but also in financial remedy cases on divorce, I think for the first time in GCC history. Um, Part of it is because lawyers are now bringing cases to the Abu Dhabi Civil Family Court because we are testing the boundaries of this new jurisdiction. And what is so rewarding and so encouraging is that the, the judges who sit there are very brave and they are making decisions which are not the usual because obviously usually in the GCC and in, in the UEE, things like your religion and your gender would be extremely important when it comes to where a child should live, who should decide uh, the important decisions for a child. This court is saying we don't discriminate on religion, we don't discriminate on gender, what's best for the child? And that is really refreshing. As a family lawyer, it's great because it means for my clients, we can give them a remedy here in the UEE as opposed to having to trying to find a way to sneak into their home country to try and establish jurisdiction by some complex technical route. And and actually, for some people, they don't want cases to be decided in their home country because this is their home and they've lived here for a really long time. And the idea of going back to England or Germany or France and saying to some judge, you know, in another continent, could you decide the welfare of my child is problematic. Well, not least because you'd have to travel there and by your very nature as a parent, you have to look after your children and that involves Well, they do remote hearings. Oh, they do? Okay. I tell you what the real problem is. Asking a judge in England to understand what it's like to live here is the problem. Yeah. Because there's all kinds of misapprehensions, some of them unfair and prejudices. And and let's face it, you know, it is 
uh, to, you have to understand, to, you have to live here to understand it. I yeah, think. absolutely. And so uh, how about if you're a, a set of parents getting divorced in Dubai and you want to, you know, you're finding it difficult to figure out the custody arrangement. Can you use the family court in Abu Dhabi or do you need to live in Abu Dhabi? So the jurisdictional test for the Abu Dhabi court is you need to have a place of work, um, be a residence or have a business there. That's okay. how you get jurisdiction. Um, otherwise, if you live and work in Dubai, it's the Dubai Personal Status Court. Of course, we do have the non-Muslim law, which came into force on the 1st of February last year. Um, but that isn't the same as the Abu Dhabi Civil Family Court. It's still, uh, the proceedings are still conducted in Arabic. You still need a local lawyer. Um, they take longer in Dubai. So the Abu Dhabi Court's extremely quick. Um, and it doesn't have the same, uh, should we say, uh, desire to embrace uh, international expatriate cultural values as the Dubai Personal Status Court does, in my opinion. Why do you think Abu Dhabi's taken this approach? Because it is the first sort of city-state in the GCC to be, you know, implementing this sort of very expat-friendly law. I think it's a natural conclusion of being uh, having this many people from abroad living and working here. And actually, if you think about the revolution that we've had over the last particularly five years... It's all designed towards making this your home rather than somewhere you just come for a few years and work. And having a sophisticated family law is an important part of that. And my prediction is that not just the other Emirates in the UAE, but the other countries in the GCC are all going to follow Abu Dhabi's lead in due course. Because saying to people, come and live here and, you know, buy property, build your lives, put your children in school. But if there's a problem, you have to go and litigate it back in your home country, I don't think is very satisfactory. It all makes perfect sense. Byron James, thank you so much for coming in to explain that whole process. Sounds very interesting indeed. And we'll watch very closely on how the law develops in Dubai as well, because uh, is my, am I right in thinking that we haven't really had the details of that law that was announced back on the 1st of Yes, Feb? so the, re- the regulations have, I think, they've only just been published in Arabic. Mm. And so we're, and also you've got the judges need to get used to applying mm. a different type of law Family law is very unusual, you see. It's not it's very complicated. It's a lot of feel as yes. well as what the black letter law says, a lot of discretion. Yeah. So we need the judges to be as brave as their own every day. Byron James, partner and head of the expatriate law team right here in the UAE, specialises in all aspects of family law. Thank you so much for your time. You, as pleasure. always, thanks for coming into the agenda. Hello there, welcome back to the agenda. Now we're going to take a look at one of the UAE's biggest farms and it's located just next door to Al Maktoum International Airport. Yeah, if you're thinking that you haven't seen any big farms around the Dubai World Central area, you're right um, because we're actually talking about the world's largest indoor vertical farm. It's called the Emirates Bistanica facility. It used to be known as Crop One and it's recently been bought by Emirates Flight Catering in a strategic move which makes the company entirely UAE owned. And the facility really is quite an extraordinary example of high-tech and they say sustainable farming. But we wanted to find out a bit more about it. So I caught up with the general manager of Emirates Bastanica, Faras al-Sufi, at Gulf Food yesterday. You're about to hear just how busy Gulf Food was yesterday, I warn you. Um, But he started first by telling me all about how this acquisition came about. Emirates Bustanica or Emirates Crop One, it used to be called, started in July 2022, where Emirates Flight Catering joined venture with Crop One Holding, a company in the US, 
to establish the world's largest indoor vertical farm located over here in Dubai next to Al Maktoum Airport. Now what happens is after a year and a half almost till today, Crop One Holding filed their bankruptcy in the USA. So that leads us to think, okay, let's purchase their shares and make it 100% UAE-owned company by Emirates Flight Catering, which happened and announced uh, just today. Okay, that's so interesting that the company went bust over in the United States, but is nevertheless thriving here. Why is the company doing so well here? So what we did is we established a totally new category product in fresh produce. So our produce is 100% ready to eat. And when we say ready to eat, it's not because we wash it and sanitize it. No, it's because how we grow it starting from day one when there are seeds and the hygienic environment around it, which makes us ready to eat out of the box totally from the minute we harvest it until we submit it to the consumer. So it's unwashed, unsanitized and ready to eat. So making this, for sure it will thrive with all this crunchiness, flavorness and the shelf life as well of it. It's a great. So you basically grow salad leaves, but you're not just growing it for Emirates flight catering, are you? We can buy your products in the supermarket. I think, in fact, I have. Oh, yes, indeed. So we grow 3,000 kg a day of leafy greens. We supply Emirates Flight Catering, which on the back of that supplies over 130 airlines that fly out of Dubai Airport, as well as we supply different retailers. So we supply, you can find our product under the brand name Bustanica, which is available at Spinney's, Waitrose, Grandia's as well, Union Coop, Carrefour, Schwitram, Gian. So you can find us across different retailers. So we supply hotels, restaurants, coffee shops, different distributors, wholesalers as well. Because they all trust our produce. Say that number again. How, I, how many leafy greens, how many tons of leafy greens do you create or kilograms do you create each day? So we grow and harvest 3,000 kg a day of leafy greens, which makes us the world's largest indoor vertical farm. Leafy greens don't weigh very much. Like, what are we talking about from mass here? That, that is a huge amount. That's a huge volume indeed, yes. And uh, I will tell you, soon we will be uh, sold out. We're now looking into densifying and even grow more and uh, harvest more than three tons a day. Okay, so what does your farm look like? Because I don't see fields of lettuces outside the airport. So in a footprint, it's 10,000 square meter on three floors, which makes it again over a bit uh, 28,500 square meter of growing area. If you come to the facility, it's way different than any farm you've seen or experienced because we run things differently. It's a very hygienic environmental controlled uh, agriculture, which again makes the produce 100% safe to consume. Is it sustainable? And I ask that question from two points of view. So is it sustainable from an eco-friendly point of view? And then is it sustainable? You know, it's great. It's high-tech agriculture. It doesn't have a very big footprint. But are you actually making money? You know, is it a good way to grow lettuces? So it is indeed a very sustainable. Again, uh, if you want to grow the same amount of leafy greens, you would require 470,000 square meter of land. We do it only in 10,000 square meter of land. So space utilization is amazing. Again, the water consumption, we produce and harvest 3,000 kg a day, saving 95% of water. So again, to give you a quick example, if you want to grow 1 kg of leafy green of lettuce, you would require almost around 317 liters of water. Whereas at Emirates Bostanica today, we grow it only with 15 to 17 liters of water. So this 95 saving of, uh, of water is huge. And again, we're very proud of this acquisition and being a 100% UAE company. We support and contribute to the UAE strategy towards food security 2051, as well as water security of UAE 2036, which makes it again 
a very sustainable agri business. Besides that, while we're building Bostanica, we get so many awards on sustainability and procurement of devices, the facility, the companies that are on the building. So it's a huge sustainable project, I would say, yes. How about profit making? Is it worth doing, you know, from a business perspective? I believe, yes. Because today over here in the market, the leaders, their visions, and again, the government really, like uh, entities, they all pushing towards sustainability. And it's not only here. We've seen what happened on COP28 in Dubai just two months back. And we've seen what's going to happen. And the enforcement towards sustainability in terms of uh, agribusiness, in terms of food production, packaging. So it is a great way of doing things. Again, we can't afford keep losing those arable lands around the globe access to fresh water, not mentioning the climate change, as well the population today we're almost a bit over 8 billion we're expected by the UN research to be close to 10 billion in 25 years so we need to feed those people we need to grow things, we need to start thinking and doing things differently and what we've been doing and Emirates Bostanica contributes 100% to this vision and direction. Last question do they taste good? I mean that, that's a bit of an unfair question because I know the answer Believe me, I urge every consumer to go and try them. It's not because I'm a GM of Emirates Bostanica. It's only because we really created something different than the other. Again, we're, done, we're not trying to compete. We're trying to collaborate and create different things. So what we did is we're the only one growing, harvesting, ready-to-eat products right out of the box with full of nutri- nutrition values, crispiness, flavorness, and shelf life of 14 days minimal. We guarantee you this. And you don't have to wash it. We know how busy our schedule is. Go home, chop your salads, try all leafy greens, and I hope you'll enjoy them on your next flight as well. <laughs> Amazing there for us, Al Sufi, uh, doing a, a proper grown-up interview about whether or not Emirates Bostanica is profitable and still managing to squeeze in a little bit of an advertorial there. Uh, for us, Al Sufi, General Manager there of Emirates Bostanica, explaining how they have now bought the factory uh, from Crop One, from the team at Crop One, uh, making it an entirely UAE-based company. Right, there is so much going on down at Gulf Food at Dubai's World Trade Center at the moment. You might have heard us down there yesterday. I'm telling you, it's never been busier. Uh, But if you're new to Dubai and you haven't heard about it, it's basically a trade fair uh, for F&B, food and beverage. Uh, You have more than 5,500 exhibitors. You've got visitors from pretty much every country in the world. There's 24 halls. It's exhausting to try and get around of them. And then they also bring in food futurists and chefs, including Michelin-starred chefs. And anyone who's everyone and everyone who's anyone is all on site. They're making deals and connections. But what we get really excited about here on the radio is is the Insight Stage. That's where they host keynote speakers who discuss, amongst other topics, the future of food. And there's actually a fascinating conversation that's set to go on in about four hours' time. Um, But we've decided to preview it now. Uh, So if you're heading down to Gulf Food, apologies that we've stolen their thunder on this one. But it turns out that the future or the food of the future is going to be fermented rather than farmed with proteins like meat proteins actually grown in a lab and that that's going to replace traditional meat grown by growing a cow for example Um, but how and do we really want to eat meat that's been grown in a factory and not a field well 
To discuss that, I'm joined by not one, but two experts in the field. I've got Dr. Anthony Jicks, who's the Vice President of Innovation for Olam Food Ingredients in India, and Anna Altashi, who is Chief Technical Officer and Founding Director of Nourish Ingredients from Australia. They're both in town for Gulf Food. They're both joining me now on Microsoft Teams. Thank you very much uh, for joining me. I know you've got a very busy day. I imagine you might be down at Gulf Food now, or maybe hiding in your hotel beforehand. But good day to both of you. Lovely. Thank you. Thank you. It's so lovely to have you join us on the line. Um, so, Anna, I'm going to start with you. Tell me how you are investigating the food of the future at Nourish Ingredients. Yep. So we, we focus on the fats component. Uh, we're a food tech company based in Australia. It was founded by a team of scientists uh, that were busy looking into fats at the research uh, national organization called CSIRO. So back in the 2019, when we started seeing the hype and the trend of plant-based foods in the market, some of these companies approached us because their pro- products are still lacking the taste and we knew that the fat is behind and a key element of bringing that taste to the table. So we went out and founded the company. And since then, we've been able to achieve two products. One of uh, one of them is the meat fat that brings that, um, you know, when you grill the steak on a barbecue, that authentic aroma uh, and function and performance uh, during the cooking so that consumers can enjoy the cooking experience. And alongside that, we do have a dairy fat as well that adds creaminess to chocolate, ice cream, cheese, and uh, and enhance enhances the functionality of dairy in general. So how we do that is we use fermentation, but mostly the traditional one that we know all of, like when we ferment um, like beverages uh, and when we ferment foods, like when we make vinegar cheese fermentation process, for example. So it's not nothing. It's nothing that we haven't been used to in the past and traditionally. But we kind of created that, adopted that fermentation to create the foods that we all need to include in our menu to maintain food security for the future. Okay, so the fermentation uh, process sounds completely fascinating. Is that uh easy? Is it cheap? Is it able to be done to scale? Um, yes, so it, not to all products, I have to admit, but what uh, our strategy had maintained low inclusion rates so that when we do the fats, we're not competing with the commodity oils like the palm and coconut. Uh, they're not the fermentation cost of goods cannot keep up with that cost. Uh, so our fats are added to the menu, to a piece of burger, you'd only add 1% of fat to make that huge impact. And then it becomes really achievable in using fermentation. Okay, so you guys are more about flavouring foods rather than necessarily creating meat protein it, it itself, you know, creating a burger it, in the in the lab, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But uh, Dr. Anthony, I'm going to come to you now because uh, Olam food ingredient in India, you're about raw materials, aren't you, at Olam? That's correct. So we supply uh, food ingredients. Um, and now when we look at the protein, we not only look at uh, the quantity of protein, our focus and efforts has been so far on the quality of protein, because protein being one of the macro ingredient and gives the essential amino acids in our body. So our focus has been how do we bring good quality protein. So we are searching all protein sources. Finally, we arrived at 
you know, nut proteins. That is our focus area, especially cashew protein. Uh, it is having a good digestibility and bioavailability in our system. So it is very closer to the animal protein. So most of the products in the market today, when you go and just buy them, they tell you what is the quantity of protein, 20%, 10%, whatever that may be. But the consumer may not know how much of that protein is really adding to their nutrition, right? Uh, you need to get the amino acids. So if you look at uh, the, um, you know, the animal protein, which is 100% uh, score, because you get all the essential amino acids. Next closer one is the soy, but we have the strong beany taste, which may not be very appealing or appetizing for some. But the cashew protein is so neutral taste, and also it is very pleasant and the neutral. Uh, easily, uh, you know, you can add that to any food products we are making. So that's uh, been our focus so far. So I think maybe my brain is too meat focused. But Dr. Anthony, would you be looking to create a meat substitute out of this cashew protein or, you know, something entirely different? No, we, we can do both. Uh, we can do meat substitutes. Definitely, we have tried meatballs, patties, all that is possible because it's a, just a process innovation which is already uh, freely available because already people are doing with the plant-based protein meat. So the same process can be used in cashew protein. And uh, this uh, we also you know, have used this in uh, coffee creamers for customers the year or for using this for coffee creamers where it is plant-based, vegan, and all these claims are possible. So this is, uh, you know, one of the promising ingredients which are probably growing now in the market, but it is a little expensive, but it delivers for that cost, yeah. Absolutely fascinating to hear how uh, you guys are bringing together two different types of protein to create the foods of the future. I'm going to keep you on the line, if that's okay, and come back to you in a few minutes because I kind of want to want to find out what the next step is for this protein production, whether or not we could soon see a variety of products on our shelves or and maybe even more products on our shelves that are actually from fermented or, or nut-based based products rather than, you know, cows or sheep, for example. Uh, more of this to come right here on the agenda in the coming minutes. Uh, you are listening to the voices of Anna El-Tashi, Chief Technical Officer and Founding Director of the food tech company Nourish Ingredients, and also Dr. Anthony Jix from Olam Food Ingredients in India. More to come in the next few minutes. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Welcome back to the show. Right, we are discussing uh, the proteins or the foods of the future. That is off the back of that big Gulf food conference currently going on at Dubai's World Trade Center. It's brought so many experts into town uh, and they're all giving keynote speeches and we couldn't help um, but notice them and steal them to be guests on the radio uh, because it turns out that the food of the future is going to be fermented rather than farmed with proteins grown in the lab set to replace traditional foods. I'm joined on the line to discuss this topic by Dr. Anthony Jakes, who's Vice President of Innovation for Olam Food Ingredients in India, and also Anna El-Tashi, Chief Technical Officer and Founding Director of the food tech company Nourish Ingredients, who are based in Australia. I did say that the conference was pulling people in from around the world, and it is fantastic to have them both join us on the line today ahead of their keynote speech. Now, 
Anna, you're able to create this sort of tasty meat fat in a lab. Where do you see this technology taking you? What is next for Nourish? Yeah, so we're at the stage now where we're trying to scale that up into good sustainable quantities uh, that enable us to work uh, alongside our partners into uh, developing a product that can go into the shelf in the next couple of years. And we're focusing on delivering in that product the taste, authenticity, uh, excitement. So it's not like looking like another burger on the shelf that no one would buy into. And it has to be healthy, clean and cost attractive. So that's currently what our focus is. And um, we've done a tasting uh, demonstration last night in Dubai where we had a few guests from the Gulf Food as well. Um, And it was impressive and the feedback that we received was that it was uh, amazing how we can create tasty menus that are easily accessible and easily uh, like friendly for consumers to cook at their home. So one of the recipes was a chicken satay and the other one was a green beans um, mince that was an Asian meal and very popular in Singapore. Yeah, but healthy and clean and I would put on the table for my kids to eat in the future. That's the mission that we're at. So you actually added your fermented protein to other ingredients in order to make those two things? Yeah, we just used, you know, um, you can buy the tofu protein out of oh, the yeah. shelf, like it's a soy-based like uh, protein. So we just add our fats to it uh, with kitchen seasoning and we add green beans that are healthy and green. And that's what we've uh, served last night. And on the chicken, we've done the same. Yeah. But there's nothing else. Like there's no chemicals or additives or, you know, synthetic flavors that in our product, by bringing that um, authentic meat fat, you're actually complementing the whole recipe with the natural taste. Because I have to admit, that is what concerns me about things like, um, I mean, I'm going to use a brand name here, but, you know, like the the Mm. Beyond Meat burgers and things like that, is that... While it might be better for the environment not to be eating cow or meat, I do wonder what goes into that burger to make it taste so nice. And, you know, they seem to have a huge list of ingredients. Dr. Anthony, now you've got a real overview of this market. What do you think we'll be eating in the future? Do you think we're going to be choosing protein alternatives to meat in the future, in the near future? Yeah, there are a few important points to note here. See, the total uh, meat market, animal meat market, is today valued at 1.4 trillion US US dollars. But at the same time, the alternative protein is 14 billion dollars. But the only difference you see, the animal protein is growing at a rate of 2% year on year. Uh, The plan of the alternative protein is growing at a whopping 10% year on year. So you can imagine. The future is going to be alternative protein. But now, where the future is going to go, I would uh, put my dye into this fermentation process. It's because there's a new protein which has already emerged in the market and uh, growing very fast is a microprotein to the fermentation process where you add a particular bacteria and a fungi which can uh, create this particular um, you know, protein for you. This is also very, very sustainable because the feed to conversion ratio to get a protein is nearly 3 to 15 times better than the animal protein and also there are other alternative proteins. Now, in the fermentation process when you follow, you use 99% less water and 98% less land and 
95% less carbon dioxide you emit. So you can imagine with this impressive numbers, the future is going to be really on fermentation. That's what I would uh, uh, predict how this is going to go. Absolutely fascinating stuff. Now, I'm going to let you both go because I know you've got to prepare for your, your keynote speeches on stage at Gulf Food. But huge thanks for that that insight into the potential, um, I, I suppose, what we're going to be seeing on our supermarket shelves in, in the coming years, certainly in the near future. Anna Altashi, Chief Technical Officer and Founding Director of the food tech company Nourish Ingredients in Australia, and Dr. Anthony Jokes, Vice President of Innovation for Olam Food Ingredients in India. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Hopefully you're very near Gulf Food now because, my goodness me, the traffic in that area is pretty sticky. If you are planning to head down, this is a public service announcement because I was there yesterday. Uh, Please do take the metro. It is quick and easy and, of course, sustainable. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Welcome back to the agenda. Right, I've got a medical story for you next because four new cases of MERS in Saudi Arabia have been reported to the World Health Organization in the last six months. It's something they do twice a year. um, And the figures show, or the latest statistics show, that uh, two people also died. Now, MERS is Middle East Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus. It's typically transmitted by camels. And just like normal COVID that we know horribly well, it causes fever, cough and shortness of breath. But despite these deaths and these cases, the World Health Organization has not changed its overall public health guidance. The risk, they say, is viewed as moderate regionally and internationally. But post-pandemic, the story sort of got us thinking, you know, could those cases one day increase exponentially? You know, what is it stopping them? Why did we have a coronavirus pandemic on one hand, but not with this variety of coronavirus? Anyway, as you can tell, I'm finding my way with the topic. But luckily, I'm joined now by Professor Ian Jones, who's a professor of virology at the University of Reading in the UK, who can uh, more than answer my questions. Professor Jones, thank you very much for your time this morning. Do we need to worry about MERS? Uh, Well, we certainly need to uh, keep tabs on it, Georgia. I mean, as you have noted, there are continue to be sporadic cases uh, the number of cases that we have these days is nothing like the few, the numbers that were reported sooner after its discovery in 2012. The numbers have come down dramatically uh, in 2014. I think there were several hundred cases reported. Now we're down to perhaps a handful every year. And so the awareness of the virus and the ideas about what to do for people who are infected are much, much stronger today. Uh, so, but we can't certainly we can't forget about it. Um, whether or not it has any pandemic potential is is another question. Well, that is my next question. Intriguingly, for you, you know, why did it not turn into a pandemic? I read one fascinating article around the time of the start of you know the whole COVID nineteen crisis, which suggested that one of the reasons why governments were slow to react is because MERS didn't turn into a pandemic and everyone thought oh well this one won't either yes the 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 excuse me <clears throat> the uh, infected myself this morning oh, not sorry. mers not mers you'll not be mers. i'm glad, glad to hear not, you'll be glad to hear um 
the, the, the distinction between viruses that do and do not make a pandemic is in fact very difficult to make. Um, what we can say is that there, there have been, there still are a whole number of viruses uh, which are zoonotic in nature. That is to say, they come from animals and they occasionally get into people in unusual circumstances. And generally speaking, they will be quite lethal in the human host. We're talking about um, maybe 25 to 60% case fatality rate. In the case of MERS, it's about, about 35%. However, uh, for the virus to be, then be a successful pathogen in the human host, it must be able to replicate itself and it must be able to transmit efficiently one person to another. And in the case of MERS, that latter steps doesn't happen. We know from the cases reported that very limited transmission can occur. The numbers that I just described to you early on in the in the outbreak in 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 the early 210s, 214, 215, um, uh, are mainly made up of cases in the hospital healthcare setting, people treating the primary cases, and immediate family members who come and visit the primary infected cases, but they're not generally transmitted uh, cases in the, in the population at large. And that has remained the case. And the reason why the numbers have come down is that there's a much greater awareness of that. There's a much greater awareness that if someone unfortunately gets this virus uh, and are hospitalized, then they must be treated with extreme caution. They must be in isolation and um, family and healthcare workers really cannot approach them until they're completely free of danger. So uh, at the moment, it would appear that MERS is one of those viruses that simply cannot make it one person to another in any sort of efficient sense. And until it can do that, um, there is no possibility of it becoming a pandemic. Really interesting stuff. Professor Ian Jones, thank you so much for your time this morning right here on the agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8. Very reassuring in many ways this morning. Uh, so thank you very much indeed. Professor Ian Jones there, Professor of Virology at the University of Reading in the United Kingdom. The agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.